You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey everybody, it's Erin Carey and welcome back to Sparking Wholeness today. We are tackling an extremely important and timely topic of substance abuse. And I'm speaking with the expert that is Scott H. Silverman. He is a crisis coach and former addict with over 35 years of experience working with individuals and families across all socioeconomic spectrums, cutting to the core of the biggest challenges when treating addiction. Silverman is the CEO and president of Confidential Recovery and Safe Homes Coalition, and the author of several books, including The Opioid Epidemic, What You Don't Know Will Destroy Your Family and Your Life, which was just released in 2021, and Tell Me No, I Dare You, which I believe is a memoir. Is that correct? Yes. And he is also a TEDx speaker and CNN Hero of the Week Award recipient, and he is honored on February 19th with the Scott Silverman Day by the city of San Diego, one of my favorite cities. So thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you. It's really nice to be here, Aaron. I'm excited to have this conversation because, you know, I think as we are in the holiday season, drinking amps up and family relationship conflicts tend to amp up. I think that those are all a little bit connected sometimes. (laughs) So I'm excited to hear your perspective on, you know, preparing for the holidays and preparing for a season of overdoing it in general and, and your thoughts on that. Well, you know, it's, it's so great to be here and it's so great to be able to talk about, you know, that really what it is, is the stigma of talking about it. So mm-hmm. the fact that we're even doing yeah. that, I really appreciate the opportunity. So the holidays, first of all, it's, it's, it's the most exciting time of the year. It's the end of one year, beginning of a new year, it's celebration time, no matter what your faith, you're going to choose something to do around the uh, opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. So what I like to really tell families is, look, this is a great time to, to be together and you should, and we're going to be doing it for the first time. It seems like maybe in two years for some yeah. families. So to your point about, you know, consumption of mood altering substances, I'll be as vanilla as I can with that and generic, <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, alcohol sales are up 75%. Overdoses are up dramatically. San Diego has an increase of over 600%. And, wow. you know, over last year, just with opioids right now. So when the family gets together, you know, let's, let's listen to each other. Let's put our phones down. Let's really, let's really talk to each other because this has been a stressful couple of years for everybody. It doesn't matter what age you are. If you're a parent of a young one, or you have senior parents, you haven't been able to see, or they haven't been able to see you, or you've had a catastrophic event and you've lost someone to this awful COVID or even potentially a drug overdose Mm. or loss of job. So it's been the kind of time where, we really need each other now more than ever. Mm-hmm. And the holidays when more people get together than any other time of the year. So why not take advantage of it? And if you've got a family member who's suffering, why not let this be the time where you can maybe help them get onto a path of healing and you can do the same for yourself as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's really important. And wow, those statistics that you shared, that itself is enough to give pause and to go, what 
what are we doing, you know, and how, how can we find other ways to cope beyond substances? And there's just a lot that goes into that. But um, I I think that that's so important to touch on all of this. Can can we talk about, um, you know, you have a book about the opioid crisis. And I've never touched on that in this podcast before. And I think that that's important. Can you give me a little bit of background on on what it is, why it's a crisis. There could be people listening that have heard about it, but really don't even know what's an opioid crisis, you know? Right. So can you share some information about that? Sure. If, if, if somebody doesn't know about the opioid <laughs> crisis, unfortunately, they are, they're living in a, probably on an Island, which I really envy and would like to get there with them and spend some right. time talk, talking about stuff in general. So right now in the United States, you know, and, and I'm the kind of person, unfortunately, you, you probably don't want to take on a long trip in a motorhome If you want to learn about what it is, I know as a subject matter expert, it's a little scary, but I think it's important. People realize how catastrophic this really is. And I try to stay upbeat with the, with the tone and tenor of information sharing. But to me, it's the way we're going to help create systemic change. So right now in the United States, over 264 people are dying every single day. And this is data from last year. Okay, 264 people every single day uh, behind opioids. Now that's prescription opioids, you know, mostly Oxycontin, street drugs could be heroin. It could be any of the, you know, a medication that people are getting that's cut with opioids, fentanyl is hugely right now being put in almost every medication from cocaine to methamphetamine to marijuana, the people are vaping it, to smoking it in a pipe. So it's a really, really difficult time right now to think about how catastrophic this event is. In the three years that I wrote the book, The Opioid Epidemic, 250,000 people have died in the three years it took to write the book. And it took three years because I started on a different path with wanting to share information about helping others. And this just, the news was just pounding at me. And as a crisis coach and a family navigator, I get the kind of phone calls that most people don't get and most people don't want. And I'm passionate about helping others and helping families navigate. So, and I've been in the recovery world personally, you know, coming up, you know, in, in, well, coming up in a week, it'll be 37 years of continuous sobriety. And I share that because I want people to understand there is hope and there is help and it's worked for me. And I want to be that resource for others. And I've been involved in the people helping business, if you will, for decades. So this particular topic, you know, and it's, and I, and I was not somebody who used a lot of opioids. I used everything else, you know, mood altering, you know, hallucinogens to alcohol, to marijuana. So I have a pretty good background and I'm also a retired unlicensed pharmacist. So I have a lot of experience in what goes into how, you know, the, the drug distributor thinks. And I also understand how the drug seeker, you know, wants to try to find a way to always stay under the influence. So I get both parts of it and I'm not a clinician. I'm not a professional doctor and I'm, you know, I'm not part of law enforcement or the criminal justice system. I'm just a guy who has a lot lot of experience with this and helping others. So what I see is this epidemic, you know, it's more like almost like a pandemic, but it's an epidemic simply because of the numbers, but it's also not discussed and talked about, which is also really inappropriate. But unfortunately it's a scary one. No family member wants to admit that they have a 19 year old who accidentally overdosed by taking a pill at a party because they didn't know what was in it. I mean, what parent wants to have that conversation? But I talk to families all the time that experience things like this or know someone who has. That's where the, the ripple effect of information goes. I mean, I was so motivated with this book that was just launched you know, in May of this year that I sent a copy to every governor in the country. 
And I got six nice notes back thanking me. I even had a governor in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania governor sends the book back. It's called The Opioid Epidemic, right? Uh, if what you don't know will kill you or your family. And they sent it back to me saying, we have a policy. We don't accept gifts. It wasn't a gift, Governor. It was a tool to help save lives. And, you know, and it was just in the paper again today. There's another group of kids that got a hold of a bad batch. And there was like 14 people that overdosed. I haven't heard the morbidity rate yet, which means how many people died. And just two weeks ago, there was a young family with a five-year-old, a four-year-old, two-year-old. And the kids got a hold of their parents, or I assume their parents, fentanyl stash, and three of the kids overdosed, and one of them died. Oh, my God. This should not be happening. So it's so important to think about it, you know, and at the end of the day, I can only be a resource, and, you know, and you, Aaron, is a resource, and talk about it. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to have a platform to be able to talk. And I'm hoping someone out there will hear this message and call me. And I'll give you my number, 619-993-2738. Who in the middle of a podcast will give out their number? And I dare people to call me because I know if I get a strange number on my phone and I pick it up, it could be somebody that I could help. And if I can't help you, I promise I'll find you a way to get help. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a first. Never had that happen on the podcast before. <laughs> now, before we get any further, I want to take a second and thank our sponsor for today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Land. A lot of us, we like to say that we're eating clean and that's great. But the question is, are you cleaning clean? You might not know it, but we may be eating a credit card's worth of plastic each week thanks to the tons and tons of single-use plastic we throw out. Blue Land is trying to fix that. Blue Land was founded on the belief that a cleaner planet starts at home. It's a simple idea. Buy the bottle once, refill it forever. No more plastic waste. From their best-selling Clean Essentials Kit to their Hand Soap Duo, Blue Land offers safe, smart options for every inch of your home. Just fill Blue Land's beautiful Instagrammable bottles with warm water, pop in one of the hand soap or spray cleaner tablets, and within minutes you have powerful and effective cleaning products in the most incredible scents, such as iris agave, perine lemon, and lavender eucalyptus. And now Blue Land has teamed up with Disney to create a magical collection of hand soap forever bottles designed with Mickey and Friends whimsical personalities in mind. Blue Land's stunning, high-quality forever bottles start at just $10 when you buy a kit and are meant to be reused forever with money-saving refill tablets that start at just $2. So cut the plastic waste without sacrificing clean. Get Blue Land. You'll love it and the planet will thank you. I personally really love using the new toilet cleaner tablets. I love that they're made without chlorine bleach, hydrochloric acid, or plastic. It's actually the first ever plastic-free toilet bowl cleaner. All you do is you take a tablet, drop it into the toilet bowl, you kind of watch it disintegrate and bubble up. It smells really good too. And then you scrub it, clean your toilet, and flush. That's it. I'm a big fan of these products and I love that they are eco-friendly while also effective. Right now you can get 15% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash spark. That's 15% off your first order of any products Blueland offers at blueland.com slash spark. blueland.com slash spark. 
Okay, Scott, getting back to your knowledge of the opioid epidemic, your book, what's the thing that that's behind this, this opioid epidemic? What started it? Well, the 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 opioid, you know, epidemic has grown out of uh, a very it's an interesting journey that we, we've been on with this is is doctors were told by the manufacturer of Oxycontin, which was a company called Purdue, which was a family named the Sackler family who had been sued by a couple of thousand attorney generals. And the court cases are coming up now and, and potential settlements are being looked at. And it was it was a drug that was manufactured to help with pain. So doctors were being, you know, passing out this medication and they were basically, you know, being told by the company, this is a great medication, give it to your patients who suffer with pain. And, you know, doctors had the hypocritic oath. Their job was to listen to somebody when they said, you know, you've probably heard it. What's your level of pain? If you've ever had a trauma, a physical trauma or emotional trauma, you know, it's one to 10, 10 being the highest. And generally, if someone says it's more than X, a doctor would prescribe, you know, 90 days of Oxycontin. Mm. And what we've learned, you know, and it just was what, four years ago, roughly, the Surgeon General finally came out with a study and said, it doesn't work for long-term treatment of pain because the, the body gets immune to it and you need to take more of it. And the problem is the more you take, what it does to the brain is prevents the pain center from really getting addressed. You can numb it. It's kind of like taking an aspirin when you have a headache or Pepto-Bismol when you have you know, a stomach problem or something else to, to, that numbs you for a little bit. And hopefully, you know, cough syrup, it, go, it, it takes the irritation away, but it doesn't address the problem. So doctors are prescribing it left and right. Give me an example. In 2016, I think it was a little over 260,000 prescriptions were written for Oxycontin, just Oxycontin, and that was five years ago. And according to the studies, approximately 61% of those medications still sit in medicine cabinets. Because, you know, you take a pain pill or you take an antibiotic, you don't go through the whole script and you say, well, I'll keep it for later. I'll need it for later. I feel better now. So what happened was people got addicted to the opioids and they didn't know how to stop. And if, you know, and most people, if you've taken a pill that makes you feel good, you're not going to your doctor, doctor feel good and saying, hey, I want to stop taking this pill. What can I do to replace it? They haven't found one yet. I mean, right now, there is no real replacement for a pain medication like Oxycontin. So if you had, you know, impacted wisdom teeth as a kid, you got, you know, you were in the minors, 17, 18, 19 years old, you got some form of uh, either Oxycontin or some other opioid, maybe distilled down. And if you were older and you hurt your arm and you're in the ER, they give you Oxycontin for pain. Well, if you're predisposed, you can get addicted to it very quickly. And that's what's happened. So it's just kind of grown over time. And now, you know, because the AMA is pushing the American Medical Association, the doctors have been told, stop prescribing this. The DEA says you better slow it down. And of course, science now says it doesn't work for long-term treatment of pain because pain is, you know, a lot of it's in the brain, a lot of it's physical. And there's a lot of people who actually the drug works for are now getting you know, punitively pushed away from the medication because doctors don't want to prescribe it. There's a potential for uh, exposure to malpractice. And there's also exposure to families getting upset that, you know, they hear, when I hear a family say, my doctor's our drug pusher to my son or my loved one, you know, it's a little sad and because they're doing their job, but the individual that's taking it's gotten addicted to it over time. Now, according to science, 15% of our country 
will suffer some form of addiction over the next mm -hmm. 12 months. And, you know, if you're one of those people that are taking something for pain, it happens to be Oxycontin, getting off of it isn't going to be like flipping a switch. You may have to go through detox, you may have to go through clinical support and therapy, but there's ways to do it. The problem is there's nothing easy that replaces that. No, that is a big problem and a big question that I have to ask you also. But before we get there, I want to take a second and thank our sponsor for today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Pros. There is no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to hair care. A product that works wonders for curls might make straight hair limp and greasy. I know for me, I tend to have some scalp flakiness while also having greasiness, while also having wavy in the front hair, straight in the back. My hair's all over the place. Thanks to my personalized Pros routine. I can honestly say I've never been more in love with my hair. Pros makes custom hair care that's effective because it's personal. Using natural ingredients with proven results, Pros customizes every product in your routine from shampoo to supplements. First, Pros starts by asking about you as a person with their in-depth consultation. Pros asked me really unexpected things like how much water I drink or what's my diet like? What scents do I prefer? And one thing that really surprised me is it asked about my zip code, which kind of, I think it let them know about the UV rays, the water hardness in the area. And I thought all of that was really fascinating. Next, Pros analyzed all my answers and determined what unique blend of ingredients should be in every product of my custom routine. Together, Pros got all my hair goals covered. One thing that I have really been enjoying is the scalp mask that contains charcoal. It's refreshing. It's revitalizing for my scalp. Like I said, I do struggle sometimes with a little bit of greasiness at the roots. I am loving the curl cream and I really love the way it smells. I love that because it was personalized for me and my scent preferences, I have scents that are herby on the eucalyptus, rosemary, lavender side. So it's very calming as I am taking care of my hair whether in the shower or prepping my hair before I blow dry it. I am loving it. As a carbon neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral. If you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash spark. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash spark for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. Now, Scott, as we're talking about getting off of Oxycontin and some of these addictive drugs, it's not easy. What is a good replacement option for those coming off of these pain pills? People are looking at marijuana as a replacement. People are looking at, I heard pain doctors over the years, they basically said yoga, yoga mm -hmm. works for pain. Well, don't tell somebody who's suffering from pain, yoga is going to be enough because they're not going to believe you. So that is kind of where, you know, if I think I've, hopefully I've answered your question. It was yeah. just, and, and the way it was promoted, I mean, people were, given doctors were giving financial incentives. They were given travel trips. They were given cash gifts. They were giving parties. They were, you know, given golf, you know, extravaganzas around the world because the pharmaceutical companies were making so much money off of sale of just that one pill. 
So, you know, it's kind of, you look at it, it's almost like the tobacco industry. They mm -hmm. started glamorizing advertising, making it popular. If you didn't have a cigarette in your hand, you weren't cool. So, you know, big corporate America has a way of targeting the mind in a way where they study what it takes to get their products sold and, and they don't necessarily understand or care what the outcome is on a go forward basis until yeah. it gets, it's still somebody starts suing them and it hurts their bottom line. Then they tend to wake up. And I think what happened was people discovered that Oxycontin was so addictive. It was, it was killing people more than it was helping. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a powerful statement right there. And can you help us reduce the stigma even more because I mean, even the word stigma is a stigma, right? That the fact that we have a stigma, but um, who are people, who are the people suffering from this that are getting sucked into taking the pain meds and needing more? Cause it's not just, you know, it's everybody, it affects everyone, right? Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. A fact that I learned a few years ago that through a study that was done over the years, because it's funny, addiction and addiction treatment has been studied for decades, but, you know, it's kind of like, you know, HIV, we, we studied it. We still don't have a solution for it. I mean, look how quickly the government moved on COVID. I mean, it's amazing, which tells us, hey, it can be done if we focus. And it can be done if we throw the resources. And it isn't just money. It's the intellectual property. It's the intellect. It's the people, the science, the, the medical professionals, the folks who really understand how to work on it and come up with a solution. So the good news is we've seen it happen and, and it's happening now. So we know there are solutions for these catastrophic events. But I think what's happened is, is people have ignored the fact that it's taken place. And, and, and with addiction, it's a disease of denial. So here's the fact. For the 15% that I shared earlier that are impacted by some form of addiction, which is a maladaptive behavior, it's, a, it's the way we're wired, I know, because I'm one of them, the brain, when I take a drink, I, you know, I think it's Robert Downey Jr. who said it best, whenever I did cocaine, I broke out in handcuffs. And I think that's such a great analogy. Mm. You know, whenever I drank, I needed more and I couldn't stop. Mm -hmm. So what happens was the 15%, the, the according to this study that was done over the years, they will impact each one of those people. And I was one of them will impact seven people negatively every day. So wow. if you think about that, 70% of the population is impacted by 15% of the population that's currently under the influence or impaired. So when you ask the question, who does it impact? Well, at 85% of our population. So if you have a family member, and by the way, you and I have not even touched on the mental health, behavioral health issues that come along with, you know, people that are, are anesthetizing themselves or are allergic to mood altering substances, because most people who have those issues are duly diagnosed. And it isn't just, I have an addiction. There's something else going on. Yeah. There's some anxiety, depression, catastrophic event, inability to cope, you know, emotions that are, are just not out of, you know, in control and are out of control. And those of course, who suffer at a much higher level from mental health issues who are given medication so they can stabilize. So when you think about this issue, it's, it, it's 85% of the population and the 15% can't really sit on the sidelines and go, well, you know, I'm not going to be impacted by this because some way or another, and you think about it, someone's on the road impaired, your family, your loved one, someone's there. And if you have somebody in your family who suffers from addiction or suffers from mental health issues, you're all impacted by it. You know, mm -hmm. if you have any kind of heart whatsoever, you're impacted by it. And generally it's not in a positive way. 
Yeah. Yeah. That I'm so glad that you brought that up because that is not the direction I thought you're going to go. And I love it. I love that you went there because you're right. We are all, all of us are impacted in some yeah. form or fashion. And so can you share a little, um, maybe some misconceptions about addiction, about even, cause I, as much as, I mean, obviously the opioid epidemic is affecting so many of us. I think we're seeing a rise in functional alcoholism and what are some signs? What are some misconceptions? What, you know, you mentioned it's that whole, like, if I take a drink, I can't stop. Um, what are some other things that we can be on the lookout for, for ourselves, for our loved ones? When someone is taking mood altering substances into their body and they're allergic to it, behaviors shift very quickly. They can become very argumentative. They can become very agitated. They can become they go to the opposite side, very quiet, shut down, non-communicative. They can, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there's somebody who maybe has an issue, they're out of work, they lost a job, there's a relationship that ended, or they're, you know, <clears throat> aggravating other relationships within the family and the community. There's also, you know, someone who's suffering from addiction, they're doing everything they can because without the mood altering substances, in their mind, their diseased mind, they can't feel normal. So they're under the influence. And if they're really in a, in a progressive state, they're taking something to wake up. They're taking something to go to sleep. They're taking something to feel better during the day. And when it comes to somebody who suffers from this disease of addiction, it doesn't matter if it's sunny or cloudy. It doesn't matter if they're happy or sad because the disease of denial and the inability to feel feelings, that individual is so out of sorts. It's not a conscious decision. So it's not their fault they suffer from this disease. And if you and I were talking about diabetes, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. If somebody is suspect of potentially being a diabetic, they're taken to the doctor, they do blood work, they make an assessment, and they come up with a success plan, monitoring your blood sugar levels and injecting insulin as needed throughout the day, week, month, or year. So when you think about those two, and both of those things, in my opinion, are diseases. Some people are born with it. Some people aren't. So part of the stigma is people don't think they have a problem until they do. And when they have a problem, they don't have the tools to know what to do. So that compounds the solution part of it. And it contributes to the stigma because nobody really wants to admit, you know, my parents, when they found out that I was a, an alcoholic and I went to treatment, it, they didn't come to me and embrace me and go, oh, thank goodness you've, you've put this mark on the family. Thank you. I mean, it, it was, it was uncomfortable and it's shame-based and, you know, I worked in a big business with my family. And so people knew, and, you know, over time there's, there was an acceptance levels for those closest to me, but I found out later when I started to tell my story and make my amends to people, everyone said, yeah, we all knew that your behavior was so inappropriate. We all knew when you were at the company parties or you're traveling and my last week in my travel trip to New York, when I had blackouts and tried to take my own life, I was with 14 coworkers. So there's significant changes. And if you're close enough to somebody, you'll see them quickly. What most people don't know how to do, though, is how to help. And that's where I come in as a crisis coach and a family navigator. That's why you call me and we'll figure out some tips and tricks to move that person to a, a, at least a minimum level of care to potentially a higher level of care based on what's going on. And when you think about it, somebody breaks their arm, Aaron, 
you don't normally go on YouTube and figure out how to reset a break broken <laughs> arm. You know, there's a break, go on to YouTube, for, you know, watch YouTube for an hour and go out and readjust your kid's arm. You take them to the emergency department and you let the professionals help fix it. Same thing with somebody who's suffering from anything mood altering. And we've seen in the last two years with COVID, uh, child abuse is up, domestic violence is up, uh, divorce is up. Substance use disorders are, are rampant right now, and alcohol consumption's up. Legalized marijuana consumption's way up, and people are suffering. I mean, we're in California. I mean, our governor just earmarked $100 million, okay, to help the marijuana industry set up a fast track to get licensed, okay? And wow. as a guy who goes to recovery meetings, who knows people that are you know still kind of on the fringe of making a decision to get clean or sober... The marijuana industry, the legal marijuana industry, uh, price points are 30 to 40% more than street marijuana, meaning the growers that used to sell it before. So what's happening is as more competition comes to distribute the retail side of legalized marijuana, the underground businesses are getting a greater market share because they've got the same product for 40% less. So this, this whole concept of legalized marijuana, it'll save lots of lives. The problem is people that are taking marijuana today that weren't before because they think it's, you know, it's, it's not, they don't think it's better. They, it's legal now. So it's okay. They're putting stuff in their body that has 90% THC. And the problem with 90% THC, it's like the difference between driving 65 miles an hour and 140 miles an hour. And until you, you practice getting to that speed, you're going to have some real issues. And all it takes is a little tiny hiccup. And you're going to have a problem. And that's why we're seeing people that are hallucinating, you know, yes. and they're calling it marijuana overdosing when people are coming into ORs, uh, ERs, and, you know, they're vomiting and screaming. They, there's actually a term for it. It's called scrominating that we came wow. up with a medical emergency doc here in San Diego. It's called scrominating. People coming screaming and they're vomiting because the, the marijuana has made them sick. So I like to bring the information forward to at least get a conversation started with the family so they can start to really deal with what's going on. And that's the, the cool part about the holiday time. That's when everyone's together. So if Johnny has been struggling for the last couple of years, and as you said, it's more amplified now than ever as a family, when we sit down together, maybe the most closest person to that individual pulls them aside with mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, you know, sibling, neighbor, good friend, whatever. And says, Johnny, we're scared. We're, I'm frightened. I'm full of fear. And, and just the next part is hard. And that's to be quiet hmm. and let Johnny talk. Cause Johnny's first response is going to be, what are you talking about? I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you, you just got arrested two months ago. You've lost your job. You know, your significant other doesn't want to see you for a while. You know, the kids are living, at, you know, couch surfing now with different family members. How can we help? And again, be quiet. Don't point the finger. Don't take an inventory. Don't do that. They call it the finger of shame. You know, that just... It triggers Johnny to start to hide his behavior even more. So what a wonderful time, you know, first of all, to be together as a family, you know, I don't have my folks anymore. I don't have my in-laws anymore and just our nuclear family, our kids. And it, what a great time to really just sit and share some warm, loving thoughts of mm -hmm. what's going on in your world or what you're struggling with and being honest and transparent and finding ways to support each other. 
the government's not going to do it. I think we've all mm. clearly seen that they're so busy fighting each other uh, within their political party. They don't even want to work together as human beings. And, and I say that not as a political statement, as a level of sadness. It's like, we're voting this way because we belong to that party. And we're voting this way because we belong to that party. Well, wait a minute. What about your core values? What about the heartfelt connectivity you have to other human beings? Is that being thought about? Oh, no, no, we, we can't do that. It's like, where does that come from? So it's no wonder substance use disorders are up, you know? And when I get, you know, and I work with professionals in my outpatient program, and when I get a legislative leader or lawyer or doctor comes through, you know, their egos are so rot with what they think they should be doing it you know it's very humbling when you can't control something like that and you have to look for help outside of your help of yourself and what's interesting is those are the three hardest words in the english language is i need help mm -hmm. and i talk about that in the book if you can find a way to make that statement out loud even to write it down and maybe keep it in your pocket just get it out of your head so you can start that journey of getting help because if you don't we're going to go to your funeral yeah. And it's, it's not going to be fun and it's going to be hurtful. And not only will you no longer be with us walking around, but there are going to be people that care about you. Even if you're a big knucklehead, there'll be people that care about you that will see you as a major loss in their life. And when you think about the 260 plus people a day that die from opioids, if you imagine every one of them have 15, 20, 30 family members, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and then they have hundreds of friends amongst all those. So with the three years I shared that took to write the book, the 250,000 people that died, millions were impacted by that, millions. And that person's not coming back. And, you know, we lose people every day to lots of different things. I mean, obviously cancer. And by the way, that number I, I put out about opioids doesn't include alcohol, mm. doesn't include marijuana doesn't include cocaine, doesn't include methamphetamine, and it certainly doesn't take into account the suicides that happen every day. It just, just in America, because we're a pill-driven society. Yeah. So when you think about that, you know, the, when I heard the term pediatric morbidity a couple of years ago, Aaron, I didn't even know what to do with that phrase. Or what does that even mean? And it was explained to me that, you know, when, when kids, you know, young kids die, behind getting access to pills that are in the home that aren't secure. I mean, you mentioned that I'm CEO of the Safe Homes Coalition. It's a nonprofit that helps educate families to get unused and unsafe medication out of the home. I mean, the DEA does it. They just had a take back day in October, National Take Back Day. They do it twice a year. We have medication. I think I mentioned the 264 million prescriptions, 61% of those still sit in medicine cabinets. Hmm. And when kids, if kids are drug seekers or kids are seeking to get high or they want to feel better or they're just, they want to make money. I mean, an 80 milligram yeah. tablet of Oxycontin is worth $80 on the street. Wow. So they go to grandma's house and they go, hey, you know, Marky, let's, you, you get grandma busy. I'm going to the medicine cabinet. I don't want the jewelry. They don't want the cash. They want the medication yeah. and getting rid of it. You know, you can't put it down the drain and you can't take it to the landfill. So it's important. Hmm we have these conversations and you know, what is the actual solution? I'm making a lot of noise. Thank you for letting me make some noise. And I, you know, encourage others to do it. That's why I wrote the book. But, and to be honest, the name of the book, 
originally started with you're not God, that job is taken. Because <laughs> I really love that title. And I, it was a way of kind of getting people's attention. But I changed it because I just felt like this crisis is going to grow. And this was four years ago. And it's only gotten worse. And everywhere, there isn't a city, a major metropolitan area, a community, rural community, it doesn't matter what your faith is, doesn't matter what your income is. Drugs don't discriminate. And drugs, you know, if you're having, you have an addiction to one, there is no vaccination. So it's the process one's going to have to go through. I was a little long-winded there, but I wanted to cover all that for you. No, it's great. You touched on so many things. I mean, I just, and I also want to echo what you mentioned about marijuana. I think it's interesting now that we have it being legalized. Everybody's like, yeah, it's safe. It's great. It helps pain. I am one of those people. I absolutely cannot have a touch of THC. I will go crazy. And people are like, oh, but it's, it's marijuana. It's pure. It's great. No, not everybody has a favorable response. I, I truly hallucinate with THC and it's scary and it's not safe. <laughs> and I think people need to be aware of that. And it slows down the blood flow to the brain. So it's going to lead to more mental health issues down the line. Then we've got alcohol. It depletes vitamin B6, right? And that helps us to grow or produce serotonin in the body. So if we're depleting B6, which we need for serotonin, that's going to lead to mental health issues. So everything you're sharing, it's like, this does affect our mental health and talking about the suicide epidemic with teens right now and youth and how this plays a role. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because you touched on it a little bit, um, but our youth are in crisis right now, maybe more so than ever. They already were pre-pandemic, but I think that again, this is it just exacerbates things. So what are you seeing um, statistically and in, in with families that you're helping with teens and maybe even um, maybe younger than teens, right? Yeah, L- let me answer that question after I, I share this thought. I, I want, because people will say, you know, this guy partied his whole life. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't fair. I want to party, mom, dad. You know, they'll see this and go, well, he got to drink and he got to do drugs and he did this hallucinogens and he smoked marijuana. I did. I did. And I, and I haven't in, in almost 37 years. And I, you know, I don't want somebody not to party because they think, that I said they shouldn't party because I know that when somebody told me, no, I mean, my first book's called tell me, no, I dare you. <laughs> when, when we tell kids, no, not to do something, it doesn't necessarily resonate in a positive way with a virtual hug about, Hey, mom, dad, thanks for sharing that. You're absolutely right. I'm going to go to my room now and throw away that marijuana. Some of those, you know, counterfeit, you know, fentanyl pills that are called Xanax and get rid of the Valium. And I'm going to stop taking Lexapro and I'm not taking Ritalin anymore. And I'm not going to take Adderall. You're right. Thanks for that. That never comes up in an open conversation. Mm -hmm. So what's going on with kids today? Because casual users, people that want a recreational use, you know, whenever I do something like this, somebody, I get a call. I've been doing this my whole life and I'm just fine. Yeah. Well, you're 73 years old. And yeah, when you started, it was like when I started, it was like smoking rope. Now it's 90% THC. And if you're smoking as much as you used to, you may not be as stable as you think you are. But if you're doing it and it's working for you, that's fine. But are you getting behind the wheel of a car? Are you raising a family right now? Do you have responsibilities at work? No, I'm retired. I said, then by all means, knock yourself out. It's your life. You make that choice. But what happens with kids today, and I think coping mechanisms for children, you know, I've just gotten diminished and they weren't, they were an important tool. 
and most kids, when they got it, they got it from their families. And, you know, obviously, you know, California, 55% divorce rate, you've got disenfranchised families, you've got a single parent, you know, they're doing everything they can to raise their kids the best they can. But when kids go to school, you know, peer pressure is a big thing. I mean, we, we went through this and we're still going through it with bullying and with young people. And, you know, we're seeing that, you know, the, the, the sex trafficking that's going on. So there's a lot of influencers out there that are targeting our young people for all the wrong reasons, all the wrong reasons. So what is going on? I think that we're not asking for help. Parents are not asking for help. We're parents of, you know, you've seen it over the years. It's kind of like, well, isn't that the teacher's job to give them those tools? Nah, the teacher's job is to help them navigate the academic side and the learning opportunity. And what's fascinating, I heard this through our criminal justice system here. We're, we're, hearing a, we're not hearing about the child abuse issues because a lot of it was disclosed when children went to school. Mm-hmm. And now that they haven't been able to go to school, it's gotten worse. Now, you're a nine, 10 year old and you're watching your brother or sister get beat up. You're going to do whatever you can to try to survive. It's organic. And when if somebody says, hey, look, all you have to do is drink this or take that, your defenses are down because you're already vulnerable and you're, you're making the mistake and you're taking something in your body. You don't know what it is and it can kill you. And I think the counterfeit medication business is so big right now with fentanyl specifically being put in almost anything and everything that drug manufacturers can make. And if you're looking to make money virtually, you can make, you can get anything you want on the dark web, have it mailed to your house via USPS, PS, United States Postal Service. And then you can make it up in your home. You can order little capsules that are, you know, blanks on, on Amazon and make up your own pills. There's a term out there. It's called Skittle parties. They've been going on for about two years now. Mm. Kids go to parties. And I use the word kids. I'm talking about probably 16 and above and probably stopping all depending upon if they're doing marijuana and developmentally, they're not maturing because the science says the day you start using and drinking on a regular basis, your maturation rate shuts down. Mm -hmm. So if you started using at 13 because your older siblings were doing it, you are still at the maturation rate maturity rate of a 13 year old until you stop and your mind, body, and soul can kind of build itself back. So when you think about that, you know, kids are taking this stuff in, they don't know what's going to happen and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to feel it for a long time. So I think if you factor that into what's going on, kids are making the mistakes of wanting to get the quick fix. I know I thought that way in some ways as a addict with a compulsive, obsessive, addictive behavior, I always want things in a hurry. You know, I want to lose weight in a hurry. I want to eat a pizza and not gain weight, you know, and we've all put on a few pounds through COVID. And I, I'm not one of those who put a few pounds on. I'm one of those who put more than a few. So, you know, as humans, it's just who we are. We're, we're going to do things in a way that we think are important. But when it comes to something like that, so the Skittle parties, kids go to these parties, okay? They bring their own batch of whatever. They put it in a bowl. And a certain time of the night, somebody announces or a bell goes off or someone screams out or taps a glass and everybody goes to that bowl and takes something out of it. You have no idea what's in there. And you hear about these parties where all of us, these young people, 19, 20 year olds are in college first year. And you, you hear 14 people overdosed at a party and four people died. It was a Skittles party. 
they took stuff in their body. They had wow. no idea what it was because they'd already have a couple beers. Now, normally, you know, when, when, and this is what happened to Whitney Houston. She had this poly drug thing going on mm. and she overdosed and she died. And, you know, it was Dr. Drew. I like to tell this story because when I remember seeing when, when, you know, how sad that was, and as somebody in this field of helping others, especially around substance use disorders, when I saw what happened to her, you know, and, and then he was on the news for like three days, he was upset. He said, people who have means, professionals, musicians, entertainers, movie stars, sports figures, they've been doing drugs for decades. And now all of a sudden we're seeing people overdose and dying. Well, I think it's up to 25% of our youth right now are on some sort of prescription medication, you know, mm -hmm. Ritalin, Adderall, mm -hmm. something to help with school or focus or attention or depression or anxiety. And what happens is when you mix street drugs with prescription drugs, and there's not a lot of studies around this yet, it can have some really, you know, controversial outcomes, which obviously it happens. And then you start to mix things that have other things in them, like cocaine with fentanyl or heroin with fentanyl. And when you're hearing now with these high profile, you know, entertainers, all of a sudden they're found dead. It's usually with something they took that had fentanyl in it because wow. fentanyl is very, very powerful. It was actually originally created to deal with cancer patients with extreme pain. It was historically given intravenously and now you can get it, make it, put it in a powder form, and you can mix it in a, in a vaping pipe. You can put it in a marijuana joint. You can mix it with cocaine or methamphetamine. And that's what people are doing, or just take it all by itself. The problem is this, you know, you visualize a tip of a straight pin, not the head, a tip. That little granule right there is enough to kill somebody. Wow. So when you think about what kids are exposed to today. And, and so how do we insulate them? I mean, going back to your question, what do we do with children who are vulnerable right now? And by the way, I don't believe when you hear about these accidental overdoses, a lot of these kids never had a substance use disorder. They aren't predisposed to addiction. They are just kids doing what kids do. The problem is today, the stuff that's out there is poison. And I think that's the problem. One of the problems. So how do we solve that? Well, you don't put something in your body if you don't know where it came from. Yeah. You certainly, if someone says, hey, we're going to get some fried chicken. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't that the place that was just had some bad chicken and people got sick? Would you go there until you were certain? I mean, Trader Joe's, I remember I just had a recall with some <laughs> corn chips because something was in it. You know, I took my corn chips back and got them replaced, but wouldn't even dare touch them. But for some reason with young people, we, we, we think they think that, you know, we're invincible. This won't happen to me. You know, I, I, I met a family whose son, they called me, they were in the ER, their son had overdosed. And they said, we got your name from so-and-so. What do we do? I said, well, let, let, how's your son doing? You know, he's stable, blah, blah. Let's talk in a day or two when we get past this and we'll come up with a plan. And it turns out this guy's best friend two weeks earlier had taken the same drugs he took, but the drugs that he, his friend took killed him. Oh, wow. Cut with fentanyl. Now, here we are two weeks later, his best friend is taking the same drug. So the message isn't even getting in their head. This could be dangerous. Hmm. Wow. That's a lot. And I, and I think, yeah, you factor in the overwhelm that kids are going through right now, the fear, the anxiety, and brains are just a little dysregulated and not really knowing what does the future hold? We don't know. And so 
just, you know, screw it. Let's take this random stuff. You know, like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, and then the prefrontal cortex isn't developed. I mean, so there's just so many factors at play there. And as, as a parent of a teen, <laughs> I mean, it does make me go, okay, we, there are many more conversations that we need to be having because I didn't, wasn't aware of the Skittles parties. You know, I think that's important. I wasn't aware that kids are just, you know, taking stuff I, for fun. I, I would bet you dollars to donuts that each one of your children, I don't, not knowing how old they are, they all have a best friend. We all had that. Mm. And if our best friend comes to us and says, hey, Aaron, my brother, my sister took this stuff last weekend and they had the best time. Mm -hmm. Unless your child's really prepared in their own well-being and core values to be able to say, you know, I'd rather wait till the weekend or something or, or find a way to, to deflect the request. The odds are, though, that peer pressure, even though they're not thinking that they're going to hurt somebody, they want them to, you know, experience what they think was something wonderful. I mean, clearly sports, running, jogging, camping, skiing, snowboarding, those are all great things. And everybody who loves things want to share them with people they care about. The problem is, is to your point earlier, is what's going on? Why is that even a, an option on the menu of choices for life? And I don't know the answer to that, to be candid. And I wish I did because I probably would sell a lot more books and save a lot more lives, but I can't answer that question. So it's really going to be up to families and the, you know, there's a variety of different modalities out there to help people, but unfortunately the outcomes are pretty poor. Mm. And one of the a colleague of mine, a psychiatrist, he's shared the story that one of the things that families can do that shows that really works is sitting down as a family three nights a week and having dinner together phones down, iPads off, TV off, and just talk to each other, even if it's 10 minutes, just to mm -hmm. kind of recharge that heartfelt connection uh, can make a difference in a child's life. And when you think about it, you know, everyone's eating at different times. Everyone's got, you know, when I cook dinner for my two girls and they're in their thirties, I got to make something for this one. That one's got to have gluten-free. <laughs> my wife wants to have what I have, but she wants hers medium rare. I got to have my, you know, I don't mind doing it. But one day, you know, I had a temper tantrum last year. My daughter said, wow, th these eggs are not the way I like them. And I, I said, how many different ways can I make eggs? Scrambled eggs. I mean, it's like probably a hundred, but I'm not doing that. This is not a, I'm not a short order cook and it's Sunday morning and pick what you want and put the West, give the rest of the dogs, you know, you know, and you, but I had a bad reaction to that. And I looked at my behavior in that. And I just, I, and I, I sat down with the kids for the weekends over and said, look, I apologize. I make amends. It was me. I blew up. There's no reason for that. And that's part of the process. I think when you're able to say, you know what, that was me and I'm sorry. And I really, shouldn't have gone there. And I did. And I apologize for going there. And to be able to do that at my age, 67, um, it makes me feel good. I, I, I feel bad that I had to react that way. Can I remember going back though? And I'd go for days, maybe weeks with that behavior. And now it's a matter of hopefully minutes, hours, I can manage it differently. But if I wasn't listening to feedback and I asked my kids, I go, cause you know, COVID was affecting everyone. And, you know, and people are changing right now. There's loss of jobs. There's new careers. We're working virtually. And I, you know, I personally love it. I go to my recovery meetings and I see like 40 people on the screen and I still have ADHD. So for me, watching 40 <laughs> people sitting in their living rooms That's is rough. kind of cool, you know, <laughs> oh, there's Joey. He's making another peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You're doing it wrong. So I go in the chat room and go, use a knife for the peanut butter and use a spoon for the jelly. It's much better. So, you know, and, and most 
of the world has no idea how to live like this. We've never experienced it. And there are people, hey, what do you do during uh, uh, you know, a quarantine for two years at home? Nobody knows. So we're in these really uncharted times. So it's a great time to be able to have a family, even if you only have one friend. Yeah. You know, talk to them. Tell them how you feel. Tell them how you're yeah. feeling and, and communicate and listen. Be a partner in the conversation and practice self-care. And when I t- say that out loud, people go, oh, that's a great idea. But if they don't know how, Google it. I mean, mm-hmm. we can figure almost anything out all by yourself mm-hmm. with a half an hour on the, on the internet if you want to, if you want yeah. to. And, but you know what? If everything's going great, everything's flying smoothly the way you want, don't do a thing. But if something is a little off or you're not sure, ask for help. It can be that simple. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everybody has felt off in the last couple of years. And I, so I think it's, it's, it's a good time to tap inward and to check into, you know, you mentioned earlier that inability to feel feelings, like how are we doing with our feelings? Do we acknowledge them? Are we tapping into that? Um, And I I think that that's huge and that self-awareness piece, but we are running out of time. So I'm going to ask you one last question that I love to ask. And that is if you could give one piece of advice to spark wholeness or to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? Love yourself. And if you don't know how, ask for help. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, that that is probably the shortest answer anybody's ever given, but it it says so much. So where can people learn more about you and your work and your books and all that? Well, contact me, Scott H. Silverman. And I put the H in there because there's a, a, he's become a buddy of mine on the internet. He's in Japan and he gets <laughs> my stuff. So I put the H there. It's my middle initial. Google me. And let's talk. Uh, yourcrisiscoach.com is my website, yourcrisiscoach.com. You can always uh, email me through that or call me directly, 619-993-2738. I answer every call myself. I take every call I can. And if I'm not available, text me, leave a voicemail. If you don't hear back from me for 24 hours, I will do everything I can to get back to you as soon as possible. And if you can, grab my book, you know, The Opioid Epidemics on Amazon. You get it through my website. And use it as a tool because in there are stories from families who have lost loved ones and they're giving you some real insight. And if I can be a resource to you, your family, your leaders and your community, thought leaders, faith-based leaders, legislative leaders, let me know. I'll go anywhere and do anything virtually now, but I can to be a resource to you and your family. Thank you so, so much for this conversation. I appreciate your passion and your commitment toward helping people recover. It's so powerful. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.